Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving, what a, what, what a great time of year. And I was so blessed by our church that we took time this morning for a minute and a half, two minutes to really think about, you know, what are we thankful for, to pray, to search our hearts and, and to look at that and, and to pray through some things. Sadly, I think a lot of times I, I've seen in my own family, we've changed it a little bit now, but we just go around the table real quick on Thanksgiving, say, I'm, I'm thankful for this, I'm thankful for that, and we kind of blow by that whole thing. <clears throat> but when we really start to think about what are we thankful for, what do we have to be thankful for, and, and it goes so deep, I mean, just think about your cars. I mean, you didn't have to walk here on this nasty Northwest Indiana morning, you got to take a car. And what about the guy who works on your car? Thankful for him. And it starts to go deeper. Our houses, we, we live in these nice houses that have uh, wa- running water and electricity. Have you ever watched Buying Alaska? They pay $150,000 for places that have no running water and no electricity. I don't understand it. But anyway, we have that. Uh, we have relatively safe communities that we live in. We have clothes. Our economy right now is soaring with employment. We live in a country that has freedoms that other countries don't have. And what a blessing that is. We live in a country that we are able to worship freely, not under persecution. We have Bethel, the church community overall, but on a a smaller level, the Cedar Lake Bethel community. And for myself, it's such a blessing to see maybe the backside of so many things that happen when this community, the Cedar Lake community, goes into some kind of tragedy. How you, as members, step up and care for people. And it's not only meals, it's financial. It's so many different ways. And what, how grateful we are for that. But the greatest, as Pastor Mark talked about, The greatest is Jesus, the salvation that we have in Jesus, and that salvation that has been revealed to us. What a blessing that is. But what do we do with these blessings? We have all these blessings that come on us, but what do we actually do with the blessings? Do we just say, oh, thank you very much, I'm going to move on? Or do we actually take a step back? Matthew 19, there's this guy that uh, comes to Jesus, and it's Matthew 19, 16 to uh, 22, and behold, a man came to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he, Jesus, said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, shall not murder you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all of these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. You see, Jesus calls him to something that he calls us to as well. He says, if you want to follow me, go sell everything you got. 
which means Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, you're going to get uncomfortable. And he tells us that all through scripture. He said, take up your cross and follow me. That cross was a sign of crucifixion, the worst kind of death you could die at this time. And he said, if you're going to follow me, take up your cross. Understand, you're going to get persecuted for following me, and it's not going to be easy. He says, you will be persecuted for my name's sake. In the United States, we have become very okay with being comfortable Christians. And when we think of the Christian persecution, we look at being persecuted for our faith. But I want to suggest something a little bit different today. Maybe it's not being persecuted for our faith, but may I suggest that our faith suffers today because of our affluence and our comfort. We look at the rich and famous, and last night I was watching 48 Hours, and it was about Casey Kasem, the famous disc jockey from back in the day, and his family, and Casey had a, a net worth of between 60 and $100 million, and his second wife and the kids are just in this terrible dispute over money and how this affluence destroys families. How we even see in our own community that affluent families, families like ours, where bad choices, poor choices are made and how it destroys families. We live in a comfortable society and we want for little, if anything. And because of that, we suffer in our faith. Our faith suffers instead of us suffering for our faith. The Philippian church here, as I'm about to read in Philippians 2, 1 through 4, that church is suffering persecution. It is suffering persecution from the outside. And they are being attacked for their faith. And Paul calls him them to stay unified. And he then gives them how do you stay unified? How do you fight this persecution? To not become like the world around them but to see the difference that Christ makes in their lives. Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but our conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. As we see this, Paul starts it out by setting us in place. He said, if you find any encouragement being in Christ, what does that in mean? Now, I'm not an English major. I didn't like English in high school at all. But as I studied this, In is a primary preposition denoting a fixed position, a place of where you are resting at. In, you are there. So when we say in Christ, what does that actually mean? Well, Romans 8, 9 says this. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Galatians 2, 20. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, 
but Christ lives in me. You see, Christ is in us. If you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you've said, I'm a sinner, I need a Savior, I can't do this on my own, I have trusted that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. When you made that decision, you have the Spirit of God living inside of you, Christ living in you, the Holy Spirit inside of you. Now, we are presently, if you did not know, and if you did not know, then it may be a little bit of a problem with your geography, but we are in Cedar Lake, Indiana right now. That's where we're at. Some of you live in St. John. Some of you live in Lowell. We have friends in here that live in Illinois. Maybe you're visiting from another state. When you leave here today, you may leave Cedar Lake, Indiana. You may leave the state of Indiana and go to your home state. That may happen. But being that, if you are in Christ, you do not leave Christ here. He doesn't stay here. He goes with you everywhere you go. And so that is a fixed position. You are in Christ. And the beauty of that is that if he is in you, then if you find any encouragement in being in Christ, find comfort from his love. The, the love of Christ is amazing. As I was visiting some cousins up in Minnesota, my one cousin and I were talking, and he said, I, I'm just overwhelmed by the ridiculous transfer. I go, Mark, what are you talking about, man? He goes, the ridiculous transfer. The transfer of my filth, my sin, my ugliness for Christ's righteousness. When Christ died on the cross and I accepted that, I, I gained Christ's righteousness and gave him my ugliness. This beauty of the ridiculous transfer, the love of, of God, that Christ that sees no boundaries, that is unconditional. If you cannot be encouraged from that type of love, then I don't know what it will take to know love. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior and you're saying, I'm not really sure about this thing, please talk to somebody before you leave that that transfer can be yours as well today. The love that we see in God sending His own Son, His own Son to die on the cross for my, for your sins. The love that needs to be encouraged to love others as well. When we know that love, when Christ is in us, that love also needs to be encouraged to others, that the others see that Christ is living in us. You know, when I was in Sunday school, I didn't always pay attention, and I'll get into that a little bit more later, but if the Sunday school teacher would ask a question, and I was, you know, figuring out some baseball statistics or something somewhere, say, uh, Billy, what do you think about that? I'd say, Jesus... You know, Jesus was always the right answer, at least I hoped it was. But if somebody asked you, what is the difference in your life? Why are you so different? The right answer is Jesus. It's not that I attend Bethel Church. It's not that my spouse is a Christian. It's not that I'm a good person. It's Jesus. You see, Jesus living inside of me changes me. And if we can find any encouragement from the Spirit living in us, participation in the Spirit 
The forgotten God, as David Jeremiah wrote about, I think we forget as well. You see, the Holy Spirit is our seal and our guarantor of our faith. He is the source of our spiritual power. He is the fruit of the Spirit is from Him. He helps us when we pray. He supplies all we need in our walk towards holiness. And the next time that you do something sinful and hurt someone else, and you go, well, the devil made me do it. I felt peer pressure. I think the better response is this. I did not follow the lead of the Holy Spirit. Because when we do something like that, when we walk away from God, when we sin, the Holy Spirit is not wanting us to do that. He is guiding in His direction of holiness. Encouragement is found in the participation of the Spirit. Any affection and and any sympathy of being in Christ, a deep affection that God has for us. It's based on the grace that he has shown us. And so Paul appeals to the Philippian church in this passage the same as God appeals to us today. To see the affection, the deep longing and love for the believers. The sympathy we see from God for the souls of all mankind. We need to do the same thing. We not only need to find comfort in that, but we need to display it to others. Affection and sympathy in Christ builds unity within the walls of the church. Affection and sympathy that we see in Christ builds unity outside the church as well. When the community can see a church that is unified, that is focused, that is living for Christ, they see something they want to be a part of, something that's different. Jesus. And dwelling in, that dwelling of the Holy Spirit inside, that participation of us following the Spirit, of that affection and love, that being inside of us leads to participation out. When we are finding this encouragement from Christ, when we allow the Holy Spirit to control our lives, When we are encouraged by the sympathy and love of God, then the inward will become the outward. What's inside comes outside, and what is lived inside our hearts is lived outside by our actions. We have the same mind and the same love as Jesus because it's being lived out. Do nothing Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing, nothing, nothing at all. Selfishness or pride is at the root of every sin. I'll say that again. Selfishness and pride are at the root of every sin. And it all started way back. Satan uh, exalted himself, taking praise for himself instead of giving that praise to God. It was by placing His will above God's will that Satan fell. It was in the garden by putting their own interests ahead of God that Adam and Eve fell. And selfishness and pride are at the heart of every sin. Next time you have an argument with your spouse, think about it. Is it about the issue? 
the next time you have an argument with your parents? Is it about the issue? And if you're honest, it's not about the issue. If you're going, oh no, you don't know my spouse, you're already being selfish. You're already being prideful. You see, at the heart of all of it is, I want to get my own way. And it happens in families, and it happens uh, in our workplace. It happens in the church. And he says, God calls us, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now, that conceit is an interesting word because in some of the translations of the Bible, it has a little bit different wording. It says empty conceit. The King James translates the Greek word maybe the best by saying vainglory, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vainglory. And that vainglory is really interesting. It refers to a highly exaggerated view of myself. To view our own accomplishments as our own accomplishments. You know, when we look back and we start thinking about the things that we talked about, I'm thankful for on Thanksgiving. We start to look at it and say, you know, I worked really hard for that. I did this for that. I, that, I have accomplished this and I have accomplished that. Really? When we really think about it, did we accomplish anything? Or did God accomplish that through us? Looking at the blessings, we are thankful for this Thanksgiving. Is that something that we accomplished or is that something that God has blessed us with? You see, because a lack of Thanksgiving can lead to a heart of vain glory, of empty conceit. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but... Don't you love when people put a but in it? I'm going to give you $20, but. (laughs) Okay, what's the but about? Well, here Paul gives us a directive. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but, and he's going to show us how to do this. But in humility, humility is a mindset that we need to have. It is a Christ-like mindset. As Paul wrote this letter to the Philippian church, humility in this culture was considered weakness. If you were humble, you were weak. And he even addresses the church at Galatia and says this, For if anyone thinks that he is something when he is not, he deceives himself. Humility in the American culture is viewed no differently today than it was back then. All you have to do is watch 30 minutes of news. We have so many special interest groups making deals for their, their interests. Did you watch any TV leading up to the elections? That was some great TV, wasn't it? just love those commercials going over and over and over and over again about how this candidate, if he did promote himself or she did promote herself, she was talking all about herself or himself. 
And if they weren't talking about themselves, they were running down the other candidate. I didn't see a lot of humility there. So a lot of pride. Look at me. I'm not the scumbag that this guy is. And you know, we watch the protests that arise on a daily basis for another cause. And we don't see any humility, but we see pride. Pride in our American culture. And we get upset because we see so much pride in the selfish media. But we have to be very careful within the church because the enemy is a great deceiver. And he will allow it to sneak in the church and he will allow that to sneak into the hearts of believers as well. And we too many times as church-going believers, we do not throw protests in the commons. But oh, don't we throw protests sometimes in our hearts as we leave? I don't like what he said. That stepped on my toes. You're protesting. You're fighting against God's word. We can present ourselves as being humble, but if we're honest, we're a lot of times not really humble. It's a false humility, which is just pride. He says, count others more significant than yourselves. This month at Verge at Youth Group, what we have done uh, is this. We have challenged our students to something different. Every week, we send home... um, lunchtime, uh, table talk, I forget the name of it. What's the name of it? What? Yeah, okay. (laughs) Lunchtime, table talk. Anyway, they have a little devotional that they do in the morning with a few Bible questions. And then what they have to do is they go to school. They don't have to do it. It's a challenge. It's up to them. They go to school and they'll ask a few questions, random, silly questions, some of them. And one of the questions I remember specifically because I asked it at a table and it was one of the most hilarious answers that I can't repeat off the pulpit at middle school. But anyway, if you were president for one day, what would you do? Okay, just imagine a middle school boy answering that. But anyway, you have a few questions. At the end of that challenge, though, there is one question that they need to ask about God. What do you know about God? What do you believe about God? And there's three different questions that they ask in their lunchroom. Why? To get conversation going at a lunch table. We've asked the high school and the middle school to do it, and it's cool to hear some of the answers. A lot of the answers, they don't know anything about God. They don't want to know anything about God. So why do we challenge them to do something like that? You see, the thing is, the series, it's called After You. And it's not about what happens to them after they die and the legacy they leave, but it's about them getting out of their comfort zone. And that comfort zone means that I am going to care for someone who possibly does not know anything about God, that I will be unashamed that I am a Christian and I am willing to ask that question. And so what if they make fun of me? Their soul is more important than my coolness. It starts by counting others more significant than yourself. And I know what some of you are thinking right now. That is such a great idea for teenagers. Boy, they need that. You know, 
Those teenagers, they walk around. They got attitude, don't they? Kind of shuffle along. Cool. They got their earbuds in. They don't talk to anybody. You know what I'm talking about. They got the cool strut. They're rude. They're this. They're that. And that's a good challenge for our teens. And you would be right. It is. But I think it's a good challenge to us as well. One of the things is when you get out of your comfort zone and share your faith, you start to put others more highly than yourself. Count others more significant than yourself. It's not about being cool anymore or accepted anymore. It is about caring for others who have no idea who God is. Counting others more highly than yourself develops a humble mindset. And in society in which we live, that is a me-first society, we place the needs of others ahead of ourselves. We show humility. We allow God's Spirit to work inside of us. We show affection for love for others. We show God's amazing love to other people. We go against culture. We go against the culture today that is blessed beyond measure, that has more than it needs. And we say, it's not about me, but it is about him. Let each of you not only look to your own interests. Let each of you, each of you, me, look not only to my own interests, so now here's really where the challenge starts to begin. As Paul empowers us and said, you've got all this. Now, don't only look to your own interests. Scripture is very clear. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Caring for others is at the heart of a right relationship with God. Because God's heart is caring for others and it's evidenced when he sent his son to die for us. So when we are in a right relationship with God, our heart will be in a relationship to care for others as well. And you can take this message and you can do with this message whatever you would like. And you can leave it here, but you can't leave Christ here. Or we can take it with us as we take Christ with us and allow others to be stretched. But it will take daily, daily fellowship with God. I want to ask you, personally, what are the things that you are holding on to so tightly right now as I talk that keeps you from serving on a faithful basis? What are those things? I'm sure you've got good excuses. You hang on so tightly and we don't want to let go that we no longer look to the interests of others and we no longer serve faithfully. The internal battle that wages war on your heart. What are the things that we allow to get in our way of faithful ministry to do this? What God has prepared us for, what God has empowered us to do, and what God has called you to do. I first met him when I was a middle school boy. Ken was a large man. 
To me, in middle school, he probably looked like seven foot eight, but he was probably more like six foot four. He's a large. If you've ever seen Babe Ruth, his figure, you know, Babe Ruth had these massively wide shoulders. Babe Ruth's a baseball player. Some of you guys are looking at me like, who's Babe Ruth? Is that a candy bar? He was a major league baseball player, for those of you who don't know. Anyway, look him up. Babe Ruth has these large shoulders. And he wasn't chiseled. He just had large shoulders. And it went down to these skinny little legs. But Babe hit 714 homers. Ken had the Babe Ruth figure. As a middle school boy, I noticed something about Ken. He had one eye, and had one eye and that black pupil. The, the bottom of the pupil went down to the white part. Whoa. Ken, you're a big man. I'm not going to make fun of that. And I say these things because I have the most respect for that man. You see, Ken... Ken wasn't the coolest guy in the church. Ken probably bought his clothes at Montgomery Ward before they went out of business. You know, but Ken, for over 30 years, Ken served in cadets. He was the lead cadet counselor. And, and Ken, he would, he would do this. Every week, he would be there. Never stopped. Had crafts. Had a lesson every week. Ken was there, and he would not miss a beat. Now, if you don't know what cadets are, they're the Christian Reformed or Reformed Church idea of Boy Scouts, which is all good. Each week a lesson. And I have to be honest, I wasn't his best cadet. In fact, I, I probably don't remember too many of his lessons. But a number of years ago, I had the opportunity to go back to my home church and preach on a Sunday morning. Walked in, greeted a few people. There was Ken. Yeah, Ken. I am so happy to see you. And he comes up and gives me this big old bear hug. He was still large, even when I was grown. And he gives me this big old bear hug. Oh, welcome back, man. It is so good to see you. And I'm thinking... I was terrible in cadets, dude. <laughs> Do you understand? Do you have me confused like with a better cadet? He was so happy to see me. And, and he's rambling on. He's going on. And, and I got to, uh, you know, give the sermon that Sunday morning. I'm, okay, Ken, okay, Ken. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. And then he says to me, as soon as the service is over, go and get a, a, a cup of coffee and a cookie and then come downstairs because I'm teaching the catechism class. Yeah. Okay, finish the message that morning, get a cup of coffee, get like five cookies, and then I go downstairs. And there is Ken. He is sitting around a table with high school students, and they are laughing and having fun, and he is teaching them God's word. He didn't stop. He just kept going. He wasn't the coolest. But he cared, he loved, and he kept going. And it struck me then as I left that church that day, he didn't receive a, any kind of pay. He didn't have a plaque up somewhere in the church and seemingly no recognition. Just a man who for years was a faithful servant who didn't stop. 
Life had not got in the way of him serving. He was a faithful servant to the end. Yes, to the end, because last year I went back and I saw his wife. I said, Joe, where's Ken? So Ken passed away. I wish I'd known. Would have come to the wake. You see, Ken didn't quit. He served to the end. And I'm sure that many of you have grown up in the church and know a faithful servant like that. In fact, as I started to look back at my church growing up in, you know, the first grade Sunday school teacher was the first grade Sunday school teacher. She was always the first grade Sunday school teacher. And the second grade Sunday school teacher, she was always the second grade Sunday school teacher. And the third, and the fourth, and the fifth. And you wanted to be a Sunday... The Sunday school superintendent probably had the easiest job in my church. Just new curriculum here, we'll pass it out because you guys aren't quitting. You're going to be here for life. And, and, and it was so cool. Hey, I want to teach Sunday school. Get in line. We have a waiting list. You know, I'm sure Ellen, our kids director, would love to have a waiting list. But they just kept doing it. And you probably know someone like that as well. That they, for years they poured Jesus Christ into the hearts of kids or into the hearts of teens. Or maybe it was into the hearts of adults. There was no retirement. There was no too busy. But there was always the call to put others' interests ahead of their own. And I have to tell you, we have some amazing servants in the CL community. And, and I, I, I'm not going to mention his name, but I was at the gym the other day. And he was talking about somebody that goes here. And he goes, yeah, my kids still remember the lessons he gave. Doing it year after year. We have the privilege of having him here. Year after year. We have some amazing servants here. But what did sadden me is at a, a recent Bethel training, they told us about our serving percentages. And sadly, there's a far greater number that are coming in being fed that are actually feeding others. But I look on the bright side because I see new ministries coming up. And I would encourage you, if you're saying, well, I, I don't see myself fitting into any kind of ministry anywhere, come to us. There's a new ministry that has just started, and it's so cool because it's their heart, their passion, their love for Christ that wants to pour into them. What has happened to the type of church worker, the one that said, sign me up for ministry, I'm going to do it for life, unless you kick me out, or God calls me to something else, I'm in it for the end. The one that deals with the knuckle-headed Bill Hilligans and doesn't give up. Let each of you not only look to your own interest, it goes beyond the walls of this church. It is in our everyday life that Christ is in me. It's in our jobs, it's in our neighborhood, it's in our schools, it's in our families, and it's a faithful calling. And it is a calling that doesn't retire, it doesn't quit, but it relies on the Spirit living within us that gets us through those tough ministry times. You know, the blessings that we have been given in this country, the blessings that we overlook and we take for granted, I wonder if those blessings are more of a persecution for us today. We want to think that we are persecuted in America because a few of our rights are being taken away. Is that really persecution? Is it persecution being called a Bible thumper? 
I think not. <laughs> hey, sign me up. <laughs> Mr. Bible Thumper to you, please. Yes. Identifies you with Scripture. You're a Jesus freak. I am. I'm okay with that. It's not persecution. That's compliments. Persecution is what you see in China. When a pastor and his family, his wife and him, have to watch their children get run over by a bulldozer because they won't renounce their faith in Christ. And then he is next. That's persecution for your faith. Maybe the persecution that we face is the affluence and the comfort of our life entitlement, of our life of entitlement and pride. You know, we suffer today because we are comfortable Christians missing out on the blessings of what God really has for us. Our busyness, our things of this world that tell us it's okay not to consider the interests of others more important than ourselves. Because our busyness, our busyness, our work hard, God is blessing us with the temporal things of life. And we keep pursuing the temporal over the eternal. We suffer in our faith and not for our faith. Sadly, in churches across this land, we have been okay with being comfortable Christians. Jesus said this, I did not come to be served, but to serve. And we have said, please serve me. Wilbur Reese wrote this years ago. I think it applies. Please give me $3 worth of Jesus. Not enough to explode my soul or to disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal the nice cold tea on a hot summer afternoon. I don't want enough of him to help me love someone of a different race. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. The Philippian church dealt with outside persecution. They were in fear of their earthly lives. The church in America faces persecution today, but it is not external, but it is internal. The critical issue in the church today is dullness. We have lost our amazement of this God that has a deep love and a deep affection for us. The good news of Jesus has become okay news. How much do we celebrate at baptism? How much do we celebrate when someone comes to know Christ? It's just okay news. No, it's not. Christianity is no longer life-changing like we see in the early church. Christianity is no longer life-changing, but Christianity is life-enhancing. And all you have to do is watch one of those prosperity preachers on TV. Follow Jesus, everything will be good. And Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. It's contradictory to Scripture. The call by Christ to a life of uncomfortable has become a life blessed by comfort. In his book, Dangerous Wonder, Mike Iaconelli said this, The greatest enemy of Christianity today may be the people who say they believe in Jesus, but are no longer astonished and amazed by Jesus. 
I don't know where you're at today. All of us come in at different places. But I hope that God's word challenges you today. Go home, read Philippians 2, 1 through 4. Read it to your family. Read it at the restaurant. What are you guys doing? We're reading Philippians 2, 1 through 4. How can I pray for you, waitress? How, how will it change? You may be saying, I'm not equipped to serve in a minister. I can't do this. I don't know that. And I'm going to tell you something. You're right. You can't. You're not equipped. You can't do it. In Christ living in you, the Holy Spirit empowering you, you can do it with their power. I run numerous marathons, and there's a marathon running group that has Philippians 4, 13 on their back. And I really don't think God cares if you're running a marathon or not. But Philippians 4, 13 says this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You can do all ministry, you can do any ministry through Christ who strengthens you. My prayer is that you do something with it today. Don't leave it here. God has shown us an incredible love and affection by sending his son. He's empowered us to be difference makers in the church and in society today. He is, we are difference makers because we have Christ in us. And I pray that if your faith is suffering from mediocrity today, that you'll be spurred on to look for the interests of others, that the humility of Christ will be reflected in the area that you serve faithfully. How will we serve others inside these walls and outside these walls? That we as individuals in a church consider others more significant than ourselves. That our Christian material life does not become a life of being comfortable Christians. It is not about the temporal blessings of this world, but it is about the eternal blessing of Jesus Christ. That Jesus will not be life enhancing to us, but he will be life changing. And that will be reflected in the way we live our lives inside this church, the way we live our lives outside the church, and the way we serve faithfully, a life that is focused on not the temporal, but the eternal.